We are in the book of 2 Samuel, and we're watching week by week as David establishes his kingship. He has been anointed king, first by God, and finally by all Israel. And now we're seeing the first steps David takes as king. Last week, we saw him set up a new capital city in Israel, the city of Jerusalem. Then we saw David setting the pattern for how he's going to lead Israel. He will lead under God's authority. We saw that when the Philistines came after David. He responded to that first by inquiring of the Lord. Then he obeyed the Lord. And he discovered the Lord went before him against his enemies. David understands this is God's kingdom, not David's. David leads Israel under God's authority and relying on God's power. And this morning, we're going to see David taking another significant step. Our passage lays another foundation stone for David's kingdom. And it teaches us about the kingdom of God in every generation, including our own. So turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find that on page 309, or in the large print Bibles, 475. And we'll read the whole of chapter 6. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel... 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, tambourines, rattles, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went up to bring the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. 
When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going round half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. This is God's word. But what on earth are we to make of it? A man gets fried because he tried to stop a box from falling over? A lady becomes childless because she didn't like her husband's dancing. It all seems very strange at first. But the opening verses of chapter 6 give us the key to everything that comes after. We've seen in previous weeks, David is in the process of establishing his kingship. And verses 1 and 2 describe an excellent ambition. Have a look at them again. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim and the ark. The ark that's mentioned here is this it's a box. Three and three quarter feet long and two and a quarter feet wide. It's made of wood overlaid with gold. And it was made back in the days when Moses was leading Israel. So at this point, the ark is around 400 years old. It was made during Moses' leadership, but it was not Moses' idea. It was God's. And God gave detailed instructions about the ark. 
But we have to ask, what is it for? Well, it was not an idol. It was not there for the people to worship it. The best way to understand it is to think of it as a footstool. The Bible says God's throne is in heaven. He's above this world. And yet, he's chosen to be present in this world. He's chosen to be involved in his creation. And in the Old Testament, the place where he was most powerfully present was among his people Israel. And the focus of his presence in Israel was the ark. Verse 2 says, he is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. The cherubim are those carved figures on the top. They represent angelic beings. And the point is not that God's in the ark. The point is he meets his people at the ark. It's like a footstool where God's presence touches this earth. Of course, as we read the Bible, we realize God is not confined to that spot above the ark. We saw last week, he went out in front of the Israelites when they were fighting the Philistines. But when the ark is in the middle of God's people, it's a very powerful symbol. It sends the message, God is king here. God rules here. The problem is, for the last 20 years in Israel, the ark has been shoved in a corner. It's been in the house of a man called Abinadab. When Saul was king, he had very little interest in the ark because Saul was focused on being king himself, not honoring God's kingship. So the ark's been sitting in Abinadab's garage or wherever, but now that David is king, his attention very quickly turns to the ark. David has a new capital city, and he wants the ark to be at the center of that city. He knows very well God has not been stuck in Abinadab's house. He has not been limited in any way during the past 20 years. But David wants the ark in Jerusalem, and he wants it there to make it clear. It's God who rules here, not David. It's God who's central here, not David. David wants Jerusalem to be not a political center so much as a worship center. And that is an excellent ambition. It's a godly ambition. It's how things are supposed to be in God's kingdom. We don't gather around human leaders or political ideas. We gather around God to give glory and honor to his name, to see his reputation flourish, to live with him at the center of our lives. David wants that, and he's right to want it. But things go very badly wrong. They go wrong because while David has the right ambition, he goes about things the wrong way. The next verses show us the danger of presumption. David wants the return of the ark to be a national celebration, 
Verse 1 told us he took 30,000 Israelites to go and collect it. Back in 2012, maybe some of you went out to see the Olympic torch passing by. Wherever it went in Britain, people crowded the streets. And when they did, they didn't just see the torch. They saw and heard lots of other stuff too. Music, people on stilts, where we saw it. There was a whole procession. And David has a similar plan for the ark. Verse 5 says, David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, tambourines, rattles, and cymbals. If you've ever heard Middle Eastern music, you have an idea what this sounded like. It's very noisy, and it's a little bit chaotic. And in the middle of it is the ark on a cart being pulled along by oxen. Abinadab's sons, Uzzah and Ahio, are walking beside it, keeping a close watch on it. But somewhere along the route, the oxen stumble over a pothole, the cart begins to tip, Uzzah reaches out to steady the cart, and before anyone realizes what's going on, Uzzah's lying dead on the road. Verse 7 says, Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. That certainly killed the party atmosphere pretty quickly. But what was the problem? What was so wrong here to make God so angry? The simple answer is, Israel was not taking God's holiness seriously. Yes, they wanted the ark to have a central place, but they were not taking the God of the ark seriously. They were not dealing with God on God's terms. We've noticed the ark was being transported on a cart. But God had given detailed instructions on how the ark was to be moved. Those instructions are fine in the book of Numbers. They tell us the ark was to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites. And in case anyone forgot that instruction, the design of the ark made it unmissable. There were gold rings on both sides of the ark. So poles could be slid in for carrying it. We might think, well, come on, so what? Uzzah dies because they used a cart instead of poles? But let's realize what's behind the use of the cart. Yes, Israel is making a song and dance about God being king. But they have decided to deal with God on their terms. So even in the midst of this noisy celebration, which is supposed to be in God's honor, they are ignoring God's clear word to them. They're announcing him as king, but they're not bowing to his authority. And no doubt the event organizers had plenty of reasons for using a cart. 
We don't think it's practical to carry the ark. And we can display it better on a cart. More people will be able to see it. And how could God not be happy? We're doing all of this in his honor. The issue here is not the cart. It's the presumption behind the cart. It's the belief that we can celebrate God while ignoring his word. It's the idea that if we sing his name loudly enough, he'll overlook the fact that we're disobeying him. And this is a timeless problem. The presumption that says, I can worship God at the same time as I'm setting aside his clear commands. Whether those commands are about money, sex, power, day-to-day relationships, day-to-day honesty, We can't decide that God's word needs to be updated. We can't decide parts of his word are trivial and still think he'll be pleased with our public displays of worship. We belittle God when we try to worship him and contradict him at the same time. David's first reaction to Uzzah's death is to get angry. In verse 8 says he calls the place Perez Uzzah, meaning the outbreak against Uzzah. Now last week, David was glad when God broke out against David's enemies, the Philistines. When that happened, David called the place Baal Perazim, the Lord who breaks out. That was fine when the Philistines were on the receiving end. But how dare God treat David's people that way? How dare he give them the same treatment as the enemies of Israel? That's what David's angry about. But as he begins to simmer down and reflect a little bit, David moves from anger to fear. Verse 9 David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. So David has gone from presumption, I'll honor God my way, to anger, because God didn't play ball, and now to fear. As he realizes, this God I'm dealing with is not tame. He's not some doddery old dude who'll take whatever I give him and like it. And this is good on David's part. This is progress. It's good when we move from presumption to fear. It's good when we see God as he is. When we realize he is not to be trifled with. One writer says, Yahweh's people tend to forget what sort of God they face. We forget that there is heat in his holiness. No, we do not need to be terrified, but being scared wouldn't hurt. 
And still, we might wonder as we read this, well, is this just an Old Testament thing? Maybe we can afford to lose the fear. But the New Testament says a sense of God's heat is vital for the Christian life. This is how the book of Acts describes the early days of the church. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. The fear of the Lord is not something you and I are to grow out of. We need it to save us from presumption in God's presence. His holiness is dangerous. Thankfully, though, that's not all there is to say about this. Because God immediately sends a clear message to David. It is not my intention to destroy you with my holiness, David. My intention is to bless you with my holiness. In his fear, David has distanced himself from the ark. He sent it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. We're not told how Obed-Edom felt about having the ark. We don't know if he volunteered. But look again at verse 11. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. God's message is, don't run away from my holiness. Don't let your healthy fear cross over into terror. My holiness does not have to be deadly. God is saying, take me seriously and you will be blessed by my presence. You'll not be destroyed. And this time David gets it right. He responds with reverent, humble exuberance. The very first thing we need to notice is there is no toning down of the exuberance here, second time round. In fact, if anything, the exuberance is ramped up a notch from the last time. From the first attempt to bring the ark. To be exuberant means to be in high spirits. And there are high spirits all around here. David has expanded the worship band. Verse 15 says, We now have shouts and trumpets on top of all the other noise. And verse 14 says, David himself is dancing before the Lord with all his might. He's working up a sweat. And according to the text, David is getting things right here. That's going to be emphasized later in the passage. There are no question marks over what David is doing here. And whatever our personal convictions about worship, 
We have to let this passage challenge us. It's not here as ammunition for us to use on others. As we think about this, let's take it personally. As we try to apply it, some of us need to accept the challenge of the early verses. The verses that tell us exuberant worship does not necessarily honor God. It means nothing if we are ignoring his word. But others of us will need to face these verses head on. These verses tell us exuberant worship can honor God. Because the key issue is not the noise level or the amount of sweat involved. The key issue is the amount of reverence involved. Is God's word being taken seriously? Are we truly submitting to it? Are we going about things with a healthy fear of God's holiness? It is entirely possible to go about things with great ceremony and soberness and formality and yet have no genuine reverence. There are churches all over England that are as somber and formal as you like. But God's word is sidelined. And there's no true fear of God at all. People assume God's pleased simply because they do things with ceremony and a long face. And for that reason, their formal worship is irreverent and presumptuous. So we mustn't think that either reserve or exuberance automatically equal reverence. Whatever our personal preference is about worship style, let's allow God's word to challenge us on this. The heart of the matter is not the style of our worship. It's our submission to God's authority. Well, so far in this second attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem, we have seen that David's exuberance is at least as great, if not greater, than the first time. But notice what's new to David's approach here. Verse 13. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Do you notice what's changed? Now God's word is being taken seriously. This time there is no cart. The ark is being carried as God commanded back in Numbers. And before the procession goes anywhere, there is confession of sin. There's a plea for God's mercy. That's what the bull and calf are for. In the Old Testament, blood sacrifices have a simple meaning. They're a way of saying to God, we admit it. We are guilty before you and we deserve to die. We cannot live with your holiness, but we beg for your mercy. 
Will you accept the death of this substitute instead of our death? David's exuberance hasn't changed, but now there's a new reverence to it. And that reverence is seen in taking God's word seriously and realizing the need for God's mercy. And today, we don't offer bulls and calves to receive his mercy. We trust in Christ's sacrifice on the cross. He is our substitute. By trusting in him, we escape being burned by God's holiness. Well, eventually the ark arrives in Jerusalem. David has prepared a tent for it, which is something similar to the tabernacle tent used back in Moses' time. David offers more sacrifices, and we're told in verse 18, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And he gives gifts to all the people, bread, dates, and raisins for everyone. And the significance of that is, that's what kings did on their enthronement. It's like our queen giving us all cake or strawberries and cream, some token to celebrate her coronation. Except here, the enthronement that's being celebrated is not David's. It's God's. God has finally been installed in his central place in Israel. It's clear, David the king is really David the servant of the Lord. This is where the aspect of humility is seen in David's worship. So the day ends well. Everyone goes home to enjoy their dates and their raisins. But for David, the day isn't over yet. And to understand the bad end to David's day, we need to notice two things that happened earlier on in the day. Verse 14 told us about David's dancing. And it told us what he was wearing as he danced. A linen ephod. A linen ephod is a very simple, no-frills outfit. And if we ask what the significance of that was, remember, David's the king. What would a king normally wear on big occasions like this? His royal robes. His crown. The bigger the occasion, the bigger the bling if you're a king or queen. That's how it normally works. But here, on this great occasion, David doesn't wear his royal robes. He wears the simplest outfit available. And we've seen already why he would do this. David wants to make a statement. The Lord is king. We're celebrating him. This day is not about bringing glory to me. That's what David's outfit is saying. Then notice what we're told in verse 16. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. 
Michael's location is very significant. Verse 15 told us all Israel is bringing back the ark. But Michael's not with them. She's not out in the streets. She's watching it all from a distance, from a window. And notice how she's described, not as Michael, wife of David, but Michael, daughter of Saul. She will be called that twice more before this is over. Saul did not install the ark at the center of Israel. Saul did not lead Israel in the worship of God. Saul promoted the cause of Saul. And here we discover Michael stands with her father. She sees David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despises him in her heart. That's strong language. She's disgusted by her husband's behavior. Why? What exactly is it that disgusts her? Well, later in the day, when David gets home, Michael lets him know why. Verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. What's your first reaction when you read that? Don't we, most of us, jump to the idea David has done something, something sexually inappropriate here? That he's shown a bit too much leg or worse? Well, the text literally says he uncovered himself. And in the context, what Michael is angry about is that David didn't wear his royal robes. There's nothing particularly revealing about an ephod. Priests wore them to work every day. So it's not bare skin that Michael's angry about. She's mad because her husband, the king, has set aside his royal robes. And with them, his dignity. He has forsaken his pomp and his splendor. On this greatest of occasions, David appeared in public like an average Joe. Or as Michael puts it, one of the vulgar fellows, meaning one of the riffraff. From Michael's point of view, this was a day to gain glory for David and his house. It was a day to elevate the royal family. But instead, David has humbled himself in the eyes of Israel. And Michael despises him for it. You wouldn't catch her stooping so low. This great occasion has been all about God, his glory, his splendor, and Michael has missed it. She's on the outside of it all. All because of the hindrance of pride. Michael thinks David was humbling himself before the people. 
But look at David's reply in verse 21. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. David says, the Lord chose me. He knows he is where he is because of God's grace. David might be king of Israel, but he knows he's in the kingdom by grace. And he's happy, he says, to lay aside even more of his royal dignity. I will become even more undignified, could be translated, I will become even smaller. Or I will become of even less account. And that's the sense here. David is not saying he's going to dance even harder. He's already danced with all his might. He's saying Michael, you're worried about losing people's respect. But these slave girls you despise, they will honor a king who humbles himself before the Lord. Michael might live in the palace, but her heart is outside the kingdom. She's living for the honor of her own name. In her pride, she will not humble herself before the Lord. She wants the royal robes for herself. And verse 23 is not just telling us she's childless. It's showing us she has no part in David's kingdom. She makes no contribution to it. She holds on to her pride and she misses out on the kingdom. What about you? When you see other people living for God's glory, when you see other people making sacrifices to serve God, do you pity them? Do you look down on them? for being so weak, so willing to miss out on other things. For David, humbling himself meant taking off his royal robes. So what does it mean for you? Maybe for you, humbling yourself would mean admitting you really don't have all the answers. You really can't explain away the God we find in the Bible. Maybe humbling yourself would mean admitting you're not as strong as you pretend to be. Or that your life without God is not quite as wonderful as you claim it is. This passage has shown us the danger of presumption and the hindrance of pride. And in the end, pride and presumption amount to much the same thing. 
Presumption says God will be pleased if I come with exuberance. Or God will be pleased if I come with ceremony and composure. But whatever form it takes, presumption doesn't truly submit to God's authority. It assumes that either reserve or exuberance will be enough for God. And pride says, I don't have to humble myself to come to God. Pride and presumption leave us in just about the same place. But listen to what Jesus said. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. What does that mean? Well, in the culture Jesus was speaking to, children had the least rights. They had the least clout. They were the most likely to be ignored. So Jesus is not saying we have to start behaving like children. He's saying we have to be willing to stand in the position of children. To lay aside our high opinion of ourselves. And to see ourselves as we really are. Helpless sinners who need God's mercy. When we come to God like that, we find the mercy we need. We find forgiveness because Jesus died as our substitute. He took off his royal robes. He lowered himself in order to raise us up. That's the amazing thing. When we throw off our pride and our presumption and come like children... Jesus takes us and he clothes us in his own dignity. He gives us his royal robes. And he gives us a reason to celebrate. So let's honor God by coming the way he calls us to come. Not with any presumption that our way of doing things is the best way but coming only relying on the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we read these events from so, so long ago, but we realize actually human nature hasn't changed. The sin that we fall into hasn't changed. The ease with which we forget your holiness hasn't changed. The ease with which we fall into presumption hasn't changed. Thinking we can behave a certain way and you will accept us. Whether it's because we're very enthusiastic or very reserved. But Father, together, we say that we're helpless before you. Helpless before your holiness. Without Christ, we would have no hope. 
And so we come to you this morning through him. And we worship you because of him. We ask you to accept our worship because of him. Amen. Let's sing, I come by the blood.